Welcome to another episode of the Embit Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Medan. Today, we have a very special guest, Spencer Raskoff, who is the former CEO of Zillow, GP of Sunny and 75 Ventures, chairman and co-founder of Picasso, and the former board member of TripAdvisor, and many more. Spencer has one of the most extensive careers of any guest on the podcast. This episode would also not have been possible without Garrett, who's the co-founder of Q. So first off, thank you, Spencer, for taking the time to hop on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for doing this, and thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So going all the way back to the beginning, straight out of college, you became an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. And near the end of that position, you took a stab at co-founding a company by launching Hotwire at the peak of the dot-com bubble in 1999. And it was a travel website booking startup. What was your experience like building a startup in the dot-com bubble when you saw companies going from being valued at millions to nothing? Stressful. Um, <laughs> you know, we started Hotwire in 1999 and it was a good time. It was bubblicious and things were good and money was flowing, not unlike um, last year or the year before. And we can talk a little bit about similarities and differences between these two eras. But then the bubble burst in spring of 2000 and Hotwire managed to continue to thrive despite the bubble bursting until late 2001. And September 2001 was the 9-11 tragedy when terrorists, of course, attacked the United States. And that created a huge travel recession in, starting in September of 2001. And that was nearly fatal for Hotwire. And what I learned as a founder and executive managing a company through that crisis was that, first of all, you have to right-size the company as quickly as possible in order to extend your runway, reduce your burn, make sure that the company can survive. And that's what a lot of companies are going through right now, where they're downsizing and they're pulling back growth plans and making sure that they can survive. The second thing I learned was the importance of transparent communication with employees. Because during those stressful, challenging times when employees aren't sure if they're going to have a job and they saw perhaps they saw their colleagues being laid off, by the company, you need to be as empathetic and communicative as possible with employees to make sure that they stay committed and connected and engaged with the company. They understand why they work there and why they should care and why they should come to work every morning, literally or figuratively. And that's a lot of work. That's that's difficult. It's stressful. It's trying on an executive team, but it's absolutely critical. So that, those are just a couple of things I learned managing through that crisis. And that crisis is, is a lot like this crisis in many ways. And so leaders are revisiting some of the same lessons today. Definitely. And afterwards, you were the VP of lodging at Expedia up until 2005 when you left to build Zillow. Now, when I interview founders, one of the main things I look for is the problem and solution. What was the problem you saw in the real estate market? And when did it hit you? The solution is what we now know as Zillow. Yeah, I like that framework a lot, the problem solution. And I actually just wrote the foreword for a book about innovation. And that's exactly what I wrote the foreword about. <laughs> so um, I, I agree with you. The, the problem that we were addressing when we started Zillow in 2006 was the fact that consumers were in the dark. Consumers shopping for a home or an apartment rental did not have access to the good stuff, the secret info that only the industry had access to. And that secret info was information on what houses were worth, what people paid for their houses, what photos of, look, of listings looked like. Believe it or not, in 2005, 2006, even though the internet was 10 years old, the top real estate sites were controlled by the real estate industry. And so they did not prioritize the consumer. 
And that was the opportunity that we saw to create Zillow and the opportunity that we exploited. And as of October of 2021, Zillow now has 36 million monthly unique visitors with hundreds of thousands of transactions. What would you say were the most important lessons you learned from building Zillow to IPO? The thing I'm most proud of from my 12 or so years run creating and then running Zillow was the company culture that we created and how engaged our employees were. You know, we won dozens of best places to work awards from Glassdoor, from Forbes, from Fortune, you name it. And our employees were very highly engaged, very excited about the mission, fired up to work there. And I think if you ask most people that worked there during the decade I was running it, they would say that they feel they did some of their best work in that environment. So that's what I'm most proud of. You know, if I had to pick a, a close second, it would be the culture of innovation that we were able to sustain for a long period of time. It, it's, it's funny, it's a bit like musicians where like a, like a rock group or a musical artist will have a short period of time where they're incredibly creative, maybe you know, three to five years, they'll put out a, a couple of albums that are huge. And then they'll spend the next 20 or so years of their career just kind of replaying those, you know, those classics. And they'll put out other music, but none of it will ever click or resonate. Companies tend to be a bit like that, where they have a burst of innovation, sort of years two to years five, and then not much after that. I believe that at Zillow, we were able to sustain that period of innovation for quite a bit longer, probably for most of the 10 or so years that I was running it. And that's hard. It's very difficult to sustain a culture of innovation for a long period of time. And that's probably the thing I'm second most proud of after the team. The two are closely related, of course. The team was actually going to be my next question because uh, Reed Hoffman, who's a former co-founder of uh, Lincoln, refers to the stages of a company as family, tribe, village, and city. And as you move through them, you have more and more employees. In the first couple of stages is when everyone knows and is very close to each other. However, as you scale a business, there are more and more people that work for you that you never even meet. How did you manage building that culture and team at scale? It's funny, on my podcast called Office Hours, I asked almost the exact same question to Mark Corbat, who was the CEO of Citigroup, when he had, I think, a million employees. And I had about a thousand employees at the time. And I asked him the exact same question. And his answer was, it was a little bit dispiriting because he basically said, at that type of scale, it's just impossible. And at the scale that I was at at Zillow, where I think we peaked at about three or 4,000 employees when I was running it, it was still very possible to build that culture and that community. The way I did it was, frankly, through a lot of hard work. I traveled a lot. I spent a lot of time in the different offices where, I had, where we had employees. I utilized a lot of different communication channels, everything from all-hands meetings to Slack to AMAs to email to texting to recorded videos I constantly communicated repetitively through those different channels, all the key strategies that I wanted employees to understand. So it became very taxing. Uh, at least half of my job, maybe three quarters of my job was to be an internal cheerleader, a basically head of HR, a head of internal communications, which is a different skill set, a very different skill set than early on at a startup where the CEO is basically the head of product. The CEO is the head of innovation. The CEO is the one sketching pages on, of a website on a whiteboard. Uh, you know, that's that's the, the key skill set early on. And, and once you're at scale, it's a totally different skill set. It's much more around coaching and leadership and leading teams of teams. 
And transitioning here into Picasso, you're the co-founder of Picasso, which allows people to invest in fractional shares of a home. Now, partial ownership could be done before, but with Picasso, you reduce the barrier to entry and make it frictionless. How does that process work from the buyer end and the seller end? Picasso allows people to buy a portion of a second home. So my goal here with my co-founders is to democratize access to second home ownership. I've been lucky enough to have had success and wealth, which allowed me to buy all of a second home. And it can have a life-changing effect on your friends and family. And so the goal of Picasso is to allow more people to experience that through co-ownership. So the way it works is you go onto the Picasso website and you'll see listings of homes for sale. And you'll see an eighth of a home in Malibu and a quarter of a home in Aspen and uh, an eighth of a home in, in Lake Tahoe, et cetera. And so for a fraction of what you would pay for the entire home, you're buying a portion of that home. And then you own that home with co-owners who you don't know. You use the Picasso app to schedule visits to your home. And then Picasso does all the property management. So it's completely turnkey. Picasso is in about 40 markets now in the US and in four countries around the world. And the company is growing extremely quickly. And speaking of growing extremely quickly, the other week I joined up Blitzscaling Ventures as a VC fellow to analyze later stage startups to find the ones that are Blitzscalable. And Blitzscaling is the art of growing really, really quickly to capture a market before your competitors, which allows a company that does it successfully to stay dominant in the space. One of the factors that contribute to growing quickly are the network effects, like we see with Airbnb. With Picasso, there are the network effects of more homes being listed, and the more people willing to take fractional ownership allows you to evidently scale quickly by being the world's fastest unicorn. So what's your strategy to take a large position in the market? We've raised a lot of capital and that's allowing us to grow very quickly. Capital is a weapon that if properly yielded can lead to significant advantage. We've hired an extraordinary team of the world's leading experts on the issues of buying homes, readying them for stays, building travel and hospitality technology, building relationships with real estate agents, all the skill sets that are required to make Picasso grow. We are working very hard to build a brand that is much bigger just three years into its existence than Zillow was three years into its existence. So all the brand research and brand studies that we do show that Picasso is on track to become a household name in a couple more years. And we are also a business that benefits from network effects because the more homes that we have, the more Picassos that there are in a given market, the more other Picassos were able to bring on there, the faster we sell homes through word of mouth and through increased brand awareness. So it is a network effects business and a scale effects business, and we're exploiting those advantages quickly. You are also known as the go-to person for real estate and prop tech with decades of experience in the space, and that's meant to be a compliment. <laughs> uh, but with more time in an industry, the more patterns you can see in it. What are some of the patterns that you have picked up and that you're keeping in mind when building out Picasso? Well, I'll start with the downside of having been in an industry for a long time, and then I'll and then I'll answer your question because there really are downsides. The fact is that when I get pitched prop tech startups, which happens usually two or three times a day, I'm super cynical. I'm super negative, and I'm I'm saying to founders, you know, this won't work. This is impossible. Like it's been done this way for ten or twenty years, and and you'll never be able to change it, et cetera. And I sometimes have to check myself because. It is that type of cynicism that comes from experience in a category that stifles innovation. If people from the industry in 2005, almost 20 years ago, had 
heard the original pitch for Zillow, they would have said the same thing. And I might've been discouraged and not pursued it. So you have to be careful about knowing too much and making that color you too skeptical. So that's the thing to be aware of. Now that having been said, you know, my experience in prop tech now has helped a lot and it's helped me make Picasso more successful, more quickly. Some of the reasons why are I understand how to partner with the real estate industry and the fact that Zillow had a lot of bumps in the road in its 15 years and made plenty of mistakes along the way, uh, building out uh, its its relationship with the industry. I, I feel that Picasso's handled that a lot better and built a business model that's really useful and, and um, additive to real estate agents. I feel that we've been able to build a better technology stack much more quickly. You know, there are many folks at Picasso who were at Zillow before, and they understand, including my co-founder who ran all of Zillow's agent software, all their B2B software. And so building out a great real estate search experience and great workflow software is something that we know how to do now because we spent 15 years doing it while at Zillow. And when we're taking a look at the current economy now, we have rising mortgage rates, slowing real estate sales, and the possible recession in the markets. How can that affect the growth of Picasso in the short term? Well, the, the truthful answer is we're not sure yet because we haven't been around long enough to see how the business actually performs through different cycles. But we hypothesize that Picasso will do well in a higher interest rate environment because our main competition at Picasso is whole home second ownership. So the value proposition of Picasso is encouraging people to not waste their money by buying all of a second home. You know, does it, does it really make sense to buy that, that country house that's going to sit empty most of the year instead of spending $2 million to buy a country house that will sit empty most of the time? Why don't you spend 1 million to buy an eighth of an $8 million house, which is ski in, ski out, is on the beach, is amazing. So you pay less and you get more in the Picasso model. So in a rising interest rate environment, the mortgage on a whole home is going to be eight times more expensive than the mortgage on a Picasso because you're only buying a fraction of it, a portion of it through Picasso. So we hypothesize that our value proposition will be even stronger in a recession or in a higher interest rate environment. But of course, we'll only know for sure in a couple of years. For sure. And for any startup founders in the audience, what are some traits that contribute to being a leader during times of economic tension? The founder needs to be deeply connected to the mission of the company. There's no such thing as just a great founder. There's only a great founder for a particular startup. Austin, for example, my co-founder at Picasso, he was put on this earth to create Picasso. He spent 10 years in real estate technology, doing other startups, and then four years at Zillow. He's been a real estate investor his whole life. He's, he's had a second home and seen the impact that that can have on his family. This is what he was meant to do. If I asked Austin to go start a company in the selling pet food online, he wouldn't be good at it. He just wouldn't be, he's not the right founder for that type of company. So an important criteria for founding success is founder product fit, making sure that the founder is deeply connected to the mission. Another key way to build a successful business is to surround yourself with diverse people who bring the skills that complement your weaknesses. And that's the sign of a good team is a team that brings together a variety of skills, just like a sports team. You know, if you think about a football team, you want everybody to have some base level of, of athleticism, but each player on the team has very different skills. You wouldn't really want the offensive lineman to play cornerback. You wouldn't want the kicker 
to play running back. You know, each of these people have diverse skills. And as a team, they come together to win Super Bowls. And to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for startup founders in the prop tech industry? I'll take a step back and describe the history of, of prop tech last 20 years in two minutes. So from 1995 to 2005 was kind of early internet. And that phase of prop tech was about startups taking offline activities and bringing them online. So these are companies like Realtor.com and HomeGain and House Values that took online classified listings and put them on the internet. And their business model was mostly to keep the good stuff behind a paywall of some sort. Then from 2005 to 2015, I'll call that the turn on the lights era. That's the, the Zillow, Trulia, Redfin era where these new services came and offered all this good stuff for free and empowered consumers with access to information. And they did, had a different business model, which was advertising. So think of it almost like a TV business model, like free, con you know, free great content and then ads. And then for the last five or so years, from 2015 to sort of this era, it has been about innovating on the transaction itself. So if you've got search and discovery at the top of the funnel, and then kind of starting in the transaction at the middle of the funnel, at the bottom of the funnel is the buying and selling of a home or renting an apartment. There's a lot of innovation happening now at that bottom of that funnel at the transaction itself. You've got iBuyers that are helping sellers sell their home more quickly. You've got power buyers that are helping people buy homes more quickly. You've got mortgage origination companies that are originating mortgages digitally, appraisal companies that are doing appraisals digitally. So reducing friction at the bottom of the transaction, that's kind of where most of the innovation is today. Now, where will the next five or plus years of innovation come from? A lot of it is around democratization of this asset class. So you've got companies like Picasso that are democratizing access to second home ownership. You've got investing companies like Roofstock, Realty Mogul, and Arrived Homes that are democratizing access to real estate investing. And then blockchain is this big wild card that nobody really knows how crypto or blockchain will impact uh, prop tech and real estate, but something will probably work there. There'll probably be a lot of failure there as well, but certainly over the next 10 years, that there'll be a lot of innovation in that space in prop tech. Yeah, and your point on reducing friction is an excellent one. It's one that appears in every single industry. And we've seen hundreds of billions of dollars in market value be created just from companies reducing friction in uh, market spaces. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's you know one of the surest ways to create a compelling business is to take a very expensive transaction of some sort and find a way to simplify it and reduce friction so that everybody saves time and money. Definitely. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Embed Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And thank you, Spencer, for taking the time to hop on the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you.